Future City is sponsored by Prudential. Bring your challenges. Funding for Future City is also provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. From WYPR in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City, our monthly radio conversation that moves the debate from what's wrong to what's next. Each month on the show, we lift up examples of innovative ideas making positive changes in other cities and ask the question, could it work here? Is it already working here? And if not, why not? Now, the U.N. states that 54% of the world's population now lives in urban areas. Now, with increased urbanization and a growing population, it is more important than ever to find access to clean, safe food. According to the Maryland Food Bank, one in nine Marylanders are food insecure, one in nine. Can growing food right here in the city help to feed some of these people? And when you live in a city on the water, like Baltimore, the harbor becomes a source of recreation, food, and economic growth, so it matters if it's kept clean or not. And unfortunately, the Inner Harbor still gets an F on its report card from Healthy Harbor. But there is one city that has started to counteract these disturbing trends. 20 years ago, Boston Harbor was known as the dirtiest harbor in the entire country. Today, it is fishable and swimmable all year round. And Bostonians are championing sustainability in other ways. 175,000 pounds of organic produce has been grown in the city on less than two acres of space. So what can Baltimore learn from Boston? Is urban agriculture the answer to food deserts in American cities? In today's episode of Future City, we explore the topic of sustainability, celebrating Boston's successes while highlighting some of the exciting initiatives already taking place here in Baltimore. My first guest today is Jesse Banhazel, the CEO and founder of Green City Growers, a Boston-based company that's transforming unused spaces into urban farms. They're best known for Fenway Farms, an expanding rooftop garden on the top of Fenway Park. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. So, Jesse, you founded Green City Growers back in 2008. So how did that all start, and where did the idea even come from? So back in 2008, uh, I actually was living in uh, New York City and working in television production. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Far cry from urban agriculture. But uh, I moved back up to the Boston area with an interest in working in food in some capacity. And a friend of mine from college, I'd been on the West Coast and had seen some businesses that were installing vegetable gardens for people in their yards and providing ongoing garden maintenance services. Um, for the residential market, and at the time, there wasn't anybody doing it in Boston. And so uh, we decided to start a business, Um, and we originally focused on helping people grow food in their yards, and very quickly that evolved into helping people grow food in all sorts of locations, uh, schools and senior living and office parks, restaurants. Uh, There was actually a big demand for it, and we happened to kind of be in the right place at the right time. But so, and your company now has expanded all across Boston, and you know, so it seems like you have clients in a whole bunch of different facets in a whole bunch of different areas. How exactly do you determine who you'll work with and what the typical client would look like for you? So typically, uh, the criteria for being a client for us is just having some, if not a very small amount of available space in which we can help to turn that into a garden, a vegetable garden or a farm. It can be on the ground. It can be on a roof. Uh, we've done all sorts of projects, um, lots of raised beds, lots of container growing, 
um, and, you know, will then come in and provide uh, support. I think that's fascinating. And, you know, you talk about the ballpark, the idea that you can look at an unused space at Fenway and say, yeah, we can turn that into a farm. How did, how did that begin? Did the stadium approach you of an idea of what they wanted or did you approach them? How did that even begin? So Fenway Park Project, um, which is just awesome, <laughs> I should mention, <laughs> a really exciting opportunity for us to be involved with. Uh, that came about, um, we actually did a program uh, based out of Boston, but it's an international uh, startup accelerator program called Mass Challenge. And through that program, we won an award for social innovation from the John Henry Foundation. And uh, the Henry Foundation is run by John and Linda Henry. Uh, they're the owners of the Red Sox. And so through that relationship, uh, we actually kind of met with them about ways that we could work with them, um, either through their foundation or through the ballpark. And serendipitously, uh, they had been considering this particular area of the park for a green roof. And uh, Linda Henry uh, is really influential in this project. Um, she's a big advocate for sustainability in general at Fenway Park. And so she really loved the idea of having that space not only be a green roof, but be a food roof and produce vegetables to be used on site. And so she was the real catalyst for getting that project off the ground. So, so paint a picture for our listeners. I mean, I, I walk up to the roof of Fenway. What do I see? If you've ever been to Fenway Park, uh, it's very small as ballpark goes. It has seats about a little under 40,000 people. Uh, it's a historical ballpark. And so um, it's a really cool space uh, where the farm is on the uh, parallel with the third baseline right at the corner of Yaki Way and Brookline Ave. And we're right on the oldest part of the ballpark, which is a facade from 1912, um, which actually kind of frames the farm. Hmm. Um, so let's say you're walking around uh, in the ballpark and you've got a beer and a hot dog and you take a corner. Um, what we've got is a 5,000-square-foot rooftop farm. Uh, it, everything that we plant is in milk crates uh, that are lined with a landscape fabric liner. Um, it's all organically grown. Um, there's astroturf down, fake turf down, um, as the ground cover is a protective layer between the waterproof membrane and us walking around. So it's kind of green and lush at all points of the year. And um, we are growing all kinds of stuff. We've got, at this point, we've got a little bit of summer crops combined with some spring crops that we're still harvesting. So you'll see anything um, from cabbages to tomatoes green beans. Uh, we do all sorts of different interesting herbs that are chosen by the chefs at the ballpark. Uh, we also have a portion of the farm that is an event space. Um, so in that space, there's tables and couches and a deck, and you can actually wander in and out and around uh, the food growing. And I actually kind of be in a part of the space over in that part of the, the farm. Jesse, you, you do not sound like someone who is in television productions. You sound like someone who's been doing this for your entire life. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's obvious. So you, you must have gone through an educational experience on this to, uh, to get as good at this as you are right now. Uh, and that actually leads me to another question about how do you now engage others to go through their own educational process, to understand the importance of it, of urban agriculture, and how receptive have people been to the idea of learning more about urban agriculture and, and, uh, and, and using space correctly? Yeah, so I didn't have any horticultural experience when I started <laughs> Green City Growers, which <laughs> is crazy, but it's true. Um, it was my friend from college had the horticulture and carpentry experience. And so I came on um, to starting the company uh, kind of to do the business management. And uh, very quickly, I uh, was really a requirement for me to know how to grow vegetables. And, 
kind of know what I was doing. And I, I learned it entirely from experience and getting your hands dirty and getting out there and learning how really how crops grow and, and participating in it. And, um, you know, that's a big portion of our business model and our, you know, what we consider to be our value as a business is being able to create opportunities for people to learn these skills. And so a huge portion of our projects involve us coming to the location, bringing plants, bringing all the horticultural materials and tools needed to maintain the garden and then facilitating the group to actually do it themselves. And so that could be at a school, it could be an office. Um, and it's great because we see people not only becoming more self-sustaining by having the skills to be able to grow their own food at their apartment or at their house, um, but also we just see there being value in general of, of seeing um, urban agriculture spaces, of having more and more of the city converted into growing space, of having community gardens, of having urban farms, of having gardens like we do, um, because we think there's a huge value in just visually understanding how food grows and what that does in terms of your own personal connection to healthy food um, of feeling comfortable and familiar with fresh vegetables. Um, and that's a big Big issue with urban settings where, you know, we don't grow up around any sort of food production. We don't know how this stuff grows or works. And so how could you tell the difference necessarily between something that was processed or something that was fresh? So, Jesse, I, I did have a question about how expensive this is and, and i.e. how inclusive is it? Uh, is it how, how easy is it for people to, you know, particularly people who are under-resourced and live in under-resourced communities, how easy is it for them to be a part of this conversation? You know, costs really vary in terms of agriculture, and um, that's a good question because I think that it actually varies so dramatically that uh, hopefully the conversation doesn't feel like it's exclusive. <laughs> but other parts of the world, people grow food for themselves, you know, and have been for all of time. It's just a part of the culture. And so, you know, there's really simple and inexpensive ways to be able to grow food for yourself. Um, you can grow food in pots on your back deck. You can grow your vegetables from seed instead of going out and buying them as starts. So it can be very, very affordable for people to get off the ground. There are um, free community garden spaces that you can apply and get a plot at uh, where potentially your municipality is making space available for you to be able to garden. Um, we're seeing a surge of um, new buildings like, um, you know, multi-tenant apartment buildings that are starting to install vegetable gardens on the property because they see it as a tenant amenity. And, um, but, you know, the more you want to grow, uh, basically the cost goes up, the more intensive you want to grow. So the more food you want to get from a smaller amount of space. So, um, you know, installing raised bed vegetable gardens um, that are, don't have any sort of season extension would be less expensive than putting in a greenhouse, a heated greenhouse, for example. Growing food in the soil or growing food, we call it open air, versus um, a closed system like a hydroponic greenhouse or um, an indoor growing system, those can start to get very pricey um, because you're talking about some pretty intensive technology that allows you to grow as much food as you can in small spaces. So, Jesse, in the, in the last 20 seconds of, uh, of our conversation, uh, making, it, making it more affordable obviously sounds like it's one of your, one of your key goals. Uh, what are some of the other key goals that you hope for your work and the work of this movement? We see so much value in just converting unused space into growing space. And so a lot of our goals as an organization are like, how do we, how do we get as much space as possible 
um, filled with growing space. Um, and so that can um, be look a lot of different ways. Um, but the key mission, again, is the more space that we fill with gardens, the more people are interacting with it, the more people are learning, the more food we're producing within um, densely populated areas. And so our goal is to grow the company so that we can do more and more and more of these projects. Um, secondarily, you know, it's, a, it's been really exciting to be able to operate in the space, to have a successful company um, that is working in urban agriculture. It's a fairly new industry. And so, you know, me as the, you know, founder and CEO, I have goals about job creation, um, you know, of creating a really great place for people to work and of kind of advancing the industry and making this be a really legitimate industry that can continue on and be sustainable and that people can work in this, um, that there's jobs and there's careers and, and people can just be growing food for other people and feeling good about it. We've been talking with Jesse Banhazel, the CEO and founder of Green City Growers. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show and for the work you've been doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Now we've talked about how urban farming has benefited the city of Boston. Let's look at some of the potential challenges. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Francois Mensibo, the director of the International Research Center of Sustainability. He's also a professor of urban planning and sustainability at Reims University. He wrote an article for an online platform, The Nature of Cities, entitled Confronting the Dark Side of Urban Agriculture. Francois joins us now from Paris. Francois, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for receiving me. So, Francois, your article emphasizes that urban agriculture is a wonderful thing if it's done correctly, but not all urban agriculture is created equal. Can you explain the difference between good agriculture and bad urban agriculture? When the interest on urban agriculture developed 20 years ago, it was on the basis of organic micro-farming kitchen and community gardens. It drew the attention of many economic and political players and large building companies and so on, you know, and big farmers doing conventional farming as well. But let me be crystal clear, community gardens, kitchen gardens, organic micro-farming are very positive, not the other. They're a total scam. And so even the idea of having these, these green skyscrapers and people receiving uh, you know, benefits and, and, and awards for being green, you still don't think that those actually are useful or good for our large society? Well, they are camouflage skyscrapers. All of a sudden, you know, concrete and glass towers became very trendy in places where not a single inhabitant would have accepted them, provided that they look green, everything is nice. So, Francois, as we here in Baltimore are trying to work towards sustainability through urban agriculture and environmentally sound, sound practices and policies, what is your advice as we're going through this process? How do we avoid some of the issues that you've spoken about today? If you want to develop agriculture, urban agriculture anywhere, not only in Baltimore, there is three simple questions to ask. Is it conventional or organic agriculture? Is it community-based or not? Will this agriculture be at the service of the inhabitants? If you can't answer yes to one of these three questions, then things can turn really bad. And something else I have to say is go slow. I mean, urban agriculture is the proper use of slowness in city planning. Let the people decide what they want and then help it happen. I mean, like a midwife, you know? We're not going to create something new out of nowhere. We're just trying to see what's happening and helping it to be realized. 
Francois, I would actually argue that the advice that you gave, uh, the three guidelines and the pillars of is it organic, is it community-based, and is it a, at the servants of its inhabitants, uh, isn't, doesn't just rep- apply to urban agriculture, but applies to many decisions that need to be made. Uh, so You're thank right. you for that. So Professor Francois Mansibo, the Director of International Research Center of Sustainability, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today about some of the potential pitfalls of urban agriculture. Again, we appreciate thank it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Have a nice day in Baltimore. (laughs) This is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. So we've been asking, is urban farming the solution to food deserts? And what can be done here in Baltimore to continue to develop these initiatives? And I'm excited now that Crystal Foreman, the Interim Executive Director and Market Manager of the Farm Alliance of Baltimore, is here to join us. Crystal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who are not familiar with it, what is the Farm Alliance and when was it started? So the Farm Alliance is a collection of urban farmers in Baltimore City, um, literally all over. It's 13 of, of us right now. And basically it's a network of producers um, working to increase viability of urban farming and improve access to urban grown foods. So it started in 2011. the originator, Maya Kosek, got an um, Open Society Institute fellowship. And before that, it was like a collection of friends from 2010, um, just urban farmers who knew that they needed to um, kind of collaborate. They did like seed swaps and buying collectively um, because urban farming can be um, costly and difficult on your own, but as a collaborative, it's a little easier. So that's why I started. So you and all these other folks, y'all are farmers. Yes. You define yourself, we are farmers. Yes, we are farmers. And so people, you all actively go out and recruit new people. They come to you. And how, how do you go out and build the Farm Alliance? There are about 20 urban farms in Baltimore City. Um, about 13 of them are part of the Farm Alliance. We are um, not actively recruiting, but people kind of seek us out and ask us information. We have an application online that people can look at. And it's just really um, basically to be a member, you have to um, be a producer farm. So producing to um, either give food to your community or sell food. And and is there a fee to join? No, there's no fee at this time. There's no fee. So anyone can come on as long as they go through the process. They can then say, okay, I'm uh, I'm now considered a farmer because I plan on producing food for distribution, sale, etc. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And, and you have educational programs for new farmers. What if there's a person uh, who has no concept whatsoever in what they're doing, but they know, I want to be a farmer. This sounds cool. Uh, do you educate them? Yes, we do. So we do have um, a collaboration with Future Harvest where we actually um, do beginner farmer t- training as well as advanced farmer training. So this year we had um, a course this winter. Um, that brought in, like, taught farmers how to do hoop houses, how to um, be a sustainable farmer, how to make a business of being a farmer, and um, everything from literally starting, like, getting seeds and how to be an organic farmer. Everything we do is organic and sustainable. So that's one of the um, requirements to be part of the Farm Alliance. We don't, none of our producers use chemicals. And you're a native Baltimorean. I am. All right. So give me an example and give our listeners an example uh, of where this is working right now in Baltimore. So um, we literally have farms all over Baltimore City as far south as um, Filbert Street, which is in Brooklyn. Um, we have Cherry Hill Urban Garden in Cherry Hill as far north as the Greener Garden. Who's, they've been doing urban gardening for over 30 years in Baltimore City. Um, and it's working... Each farm is different. So we have um, a couple of for-profit farms, and then we have non-profit farms. A lot of the farms are doing education in their communities, like White Lock has, um, which is in the Reservoir Hill area. 
white black community, they have um, education for youth. So they teach the youth how to grow the food, how to cook the food, how to harvest it, how to preserve the food. We have um, trainings for elderly people who want to just come out and socialize and um, learn, like just get their hands in the dirt again. Some of them grew up in rural areas. And so they're just excited to come into an area and actually learn how to do what their forefathers did. we have people who um, do health education, actually teaching um, nutrition, and actually I do part of that as well, teaching people how to pre- like prepare the food because sometimes you say, okay, let's put healthy food in the community, and it's there, but no one knows what to do with it. If you don't know how to cook it, <laughs> you can <ain't> eat it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. What, and what, kind, what kind of vegetables are, are people eating? What, what, are you, what are you encouraging people to grow? We have collards and kale, which is like a standard um, in a lot of our communities, as well as um, Swiss chard, Beets, radishes, um, onions, potatoes, sweet potatoes, pretty much everything, um, and we arugula. So we also introduce people to um, produce that they might not be familiar with. Yeah. Now, one thing we know about Baltimore is uh, is there are many areas in our city that are considered food deserts. Yes. Where it is incredibly difficult for people to get access to fresh food, fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, etc. Is urban farming the solution to food deserts? To me, it is one of uh, the most important solutions because it brings food sovereignty to an area and people can learn to appreciate food and know where their food actually comes from. So for youth, it's introducing them to um, fresh produce and learning how to cook. And for adults, it's just bringing that awareness as well. I think it's one of the key factors in helping decrease um, food insecurity in an, in an area. And talking about the affordability mm-hmm. measures of it, uh, you know, how, how much, how much, and even how much of the education process mm-hmm. is about how it's actually can be affordable for you to be able to eat healthy. Yes. So um, I definitely work with people um, teaching them how to eat healthy on a budget. And so we have a double dollars program where um, people who receive um, food, nutrition supplements, um, SNAP, WIC, um, programs like that, they can actually get $10 worth of produce for $5. Um, We also show people like you can make a dish to feed a family of four or five for four dollars you know using fresh produce so it doesn't have to be expensive um just having that knowledge base um is the most important thing you know and I, one of the things i like about it even just in terms of the psychology mm-hmm. of it you know being a being a big believer in in, in entrepreneurial culture and supporting entrepreneurial endeavors mm-hmm. it's the idea that you actually can define uh and build your own right, right? you can yeah. the, because these are these are farmers but these really are entrepreneurs they as are. well Yes, and there are different types of farming as well. So a lot of people say, oh, I don't have the space, but there are people doing vertical farming. We have aquaponics. Um, People are actually considered farming, like doing microgreens inside of homes, and that's considered farming because of the amount of food that they can grow. You've been listening to Future City, and I've been talking with Crystal Foreman, who is the interim executive director of the Farm Alliance of Baltimore. Crystal, it's been a joy having you on the show. Thank Thank you. you. You're tuned to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Stay with us. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance. Bring your challenges.
Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and today on Future City, we've been talking about urban agriculture and sustainability. We've discussed how the city of Boston has revolutionized urban farming and also talked with the head of Baltimore's own Farm Alliance. And now we're speaking with Gwen Coquez, Stewardship Coordinator at the Baltimore Orchard Project. Gwen, it's so great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So, so let's start simple. What is the Baltimore Orchard Project? So we started out around 2012 and we were founded by Rabbi Nina Beth Cardin. And we started just harvesting simply through all throughout the city and distributing all of that food. And so now we've grown to have five different programmatic areas, planting, stewardship, youth education, harvest, and distribution. And so, so you plant trees all throughout the city, mm-hmm. all fruit trees? And nut trees, too. Fruit and nut trees. Yeah. Why focus on fruit and nut trees? That's true. Great question. Um, I think fruit and nut trees are a great experience of getting more in touch with nature uh, while still having that really gratifying effect of harvesting something at the end of the day. Uh, we work with Tree Baltimore to plant all of our trees, and they plant millions of trees. They have gone, uh, that's an exaggeration, but they've planted shade trees, they plant oak trees, they plant really uh, baby trees, they plant teenager trees, and we focus mostly on fruit trees so that people have access to fresh food all throughout the city and greening spaces. So we've planted over 100 community orchards, so that does not include residential orchards, um, which has gotten us to almost a thousand, if not more than a thousand fruit trees, community fruit trees throughout the city. More than a thousand fruit trees. Mm-hmm. So if I walk up to one of the fruit trees, I can just literally just pull a fruit down, yep. start eating, and it's and it's good. Yep. Actually, there's an orchard right around the corner from here on 21st and Charles. It's called Open Plow. Huh. Mm-hmm. And what and what type of fruit do they have at Open Plow? They got apples, pears. Uh, there's actually some mulberries all around uh, that were just quote unquote weed trees. Um, I try not to use that term too much, <laughs> but yeah, and hopefully they'll be planting more. In the coming years. And so you also have a use art and education mm-hmm. as a way of going through the process. Can you talk a bit about your, your collaboration and partnership with, the, with, with Micah with the Maryland Institute of Art? So Micah has this awesome AmeriCorps program called the, called the Community Art Collaborative. And we've worked with them for the past, I want to say, three years. And uh, currently our artist in residence, Kelly, she has uh, strengthened communities through her artwork. So my favorite one is uh, rock guardians. So the biggest cause of damage to any tree, specifically fruit trees in urban areas, are mowing, lawn mowers, and weed whackers. And, you know, it's just people trying to do their jobs. And we need to communicate with people that if you whack a tree, especially a baby tree, um, it's going to damage it long term. So the best way that we can do that instead of wagging our fingers and getting all upset was uh, to create these rock guardians. So we started out at Paul's place with a group of middle school boys, and Kelly asked these boys, what makes you feel comfortable and safe? Some kids said my mom. Actually, a lot of kids said their mom. A lot of kids said my friend, pointing to the friend next to them. And some kids said their uncle. One kid even said the streets. Uh, so whatever made them feel comfortable um, and safe. And they painted a symbol of what makes them feel safe on these rock guardians, on large river rocks. And then we plant them or we put them all around these trees to protect them from weed whackers and lawnmowers. And you guys are citywide? Yes. Mm-hmm. How, um, which parts of the city have you been best able to penetrate and which parts mm. of the city have been stubborn? Oh, another really good question. So I, I can give an example of one that overlaps. So Carroll Park uh, down in southwest Baltimore, it's near Paul's Place where those middle school boys I was talking about um, 
It's near that Montgomery Park. It seems a little bit industrial, and then you just have this huge park just kind of like sat right in the middle of this somewhat industrial area. And I, uh, when I first saw this beautiful orchard out there, it really took me by surprise. You don't expect to see this gorgeous, I think it's about 30-year-old orchard that, that was planted back in the 90s. Um, and we want people to feel like they have access to this orchard. Um, and that's really difficult because it's not, uh, I guess, quote unquote, normal to just take food right from the from the earth. Uh, there's a lot of distrust in Baltimore. Um, there's a lot of uh, confusion about what gets sprayed and what doesn't get sprayed and what's healthy to eat and what's not healthy to eat when really you can just pick an apple off the tree, rub it on your shirt and eat it. Um, and I can say that 10 times over, but uh, it's not like everyone's going to believe me, especially uh, at the basketball court down in Carroll Park, no matter um, how much I was trying to convince people to eat mulberries and to eat the fruit right off the tree. And so that we got, um, again, we our main mission is to strengthen communities. So a lot of that is just getting into communities that already exist, like Paul's Place. And they have a Pigtown Farmer's Market where they teach a lot of people about nutrition and about healthy eating. And so what we did is we teamed up with the Pigtown Farmer's Market from Paul's Place. And we had people come over to the orchard while we were harvesting and taught them about what they can make with the apples, um, how to wash them if they wanted to. um, And everyone got to take home a bushel of apples, if not more. And so early in the show, we had a conversation where with, where we're talking about looking at some potential issues mm. with urban farming and, and urban development, a lot about the use of pesticides becoming more and more industrialized, green s- skyscrapers being just as damaging, et cetera. Mm. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, uh, that's such a hard question. So uh, with our memorandum uh, of understanding with all of our orchards that we plant with, we ask that people don't spray toxic sprays. Um, And we try to refrain from the term organic, mostly because uh, for multiple different reasons, some of them I know, some of them I don't know, um, the term organic has been kind of co-opted to be this bougie term, um, Mm. if you will. So that term is uh, what is only an expensive food store is not what you see in your local grocery store. So uh, So you're saying it's just as as bad or just as dangerous or? um, I guess just using the term... Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily just as dangerous. I would just say that it keeps people from getting involved with us because they think, all right, that this is a bougie organization where yeah. I'm going to have to pay for fancy food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that being said, I think the Farm Alliance does a great job of talking about um, how to how to talk about the term organic and what it means to all of us. So I use the term non-toxic and we uh, have the Orchard Stewards Program where we meet monthly with dedicated volunteers who are dedicated to a particular orchard. And uh, I teach them how to use different sprays and and be really mindful about uh, how to use these sprays. We've been talking with Gwen Coquez from the Baltimore Orchard Project. Gwen, thanks for your work and thanks for being here today. Thank you, Wes. Thank you. You are tuned into Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Stay with us. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance. Bring your challenges. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. So today, we've been focusing on sustainability in both Boston and Baltimore. And we started the show by comparing urban agriculture initiatives and confronting some of the challenging aspects of urban farming. But Boston and Baltimore have another important parallel that we want to address. These are both two cities that have a harbor to maintain and to keep clean. Now, Boston has had immense success in cleaning up their waterways, while Baltimore still has a ways to go. So maybe there's something that we can learn. With this in mind, we're now going to talk with Fred Lasky, who's the executive director of the Massachusetts Water Resource Authority. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Wes. Thanks for having me. And so, so Fred, so at one point, the Boston Harbor was in an incredibly dire situation. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the harbor? Sure. Boston Harbor um, in the 70s, 60s and 70s was probably the dirtiest urban harbor in the country. Uh, the Charles River, you know, the Standell song, Love That Dirty Water, um, was, was if you fell in or somehow went into the Charles River, you'd have to go get a tetanus shot and get your, your sinuses cleaned out because uh, you were sure to catch an infection. And so, you know, $5 billion and, and 20 years later, uh, Boston is, is credited with one of the great environmental um, cleanups in, in our generation nationally. Um, you know, when state-of-the-art treatment plant, the combined overflows reduced dramatically, uh, and on virtually any given day, uh, even when it rains, you can swim in most of Boston Harbor. So it's a far cry from the days of old when the, the harbor smelled and, and people would put their backs to it. Uh, and, and the side effect of, of this is one that I don't know that was fully anticipated, and that is that the economic boom along the waterfront is unmatched. Um, you know, the, the seaport district of Boston down in the, the south Boston uh, used to be abandoned warehouses and, and big parking lots where people park to go to work. And, and uh, now there are all these shiny, gleaming, uh, mixed-use buildings there. The, high, the, the biotech industry has moved down there in force, and, and there's, there's residential neighborhoods. And, and the spending is immense uh, all around the harbor uh, because it's a nice place to live, work, and play now. So, so the, the, the idea that people are just are swimming and fishing all year round in the Boston Harbor is just it's staggering when you think about where you all used to be. But you bring up a really interesting point. You know, th- there was a significant investment that was made to make this happen. It also took a good deal of time. But this has now provided real significant economic returns as well. Absolutely. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, obviously the downtown area, the seaport area, that's a, you know, a high-end uh, location. But there are other neighborhoods in the city, East Boston, for instance, which the Boston Globe, you know, politically correct, calls gritty. Uh, Chelsea, which is one of the poorest communities in the state, uh, they're all doing development down along the waterfront. And, uh, uh, the, you know, the Chelsea Creek, uh, they want a walkway down there. So there's been efforts to do a walkway. You can walk around 90% of the harbor. You can walk on a, a waterfront uh, path. So it's accessible. It's clean. And it's really been a huge economic boom. So, you, but you don't get there without being deliberate, right? I mean, so so what policies do you think were the most effective in ensuring the cleanup of the harbor? Frankly, having a strong hand, uh, two strong-handed federal judges watching over the the uh, Judge Mazzoni and Judge um, Stearns, who's still in charge of the case today, decided that they would oversee the cleanups um, of the harbor or the cleanup of the harbor. Uh, and and they ruled with a fair but a firm hand, hmm. and and so that we were in violation of the federal and state Clean Water Act, and they their, their job was to get us in compliance, and that's what they have done. 
all these years later, we still write an annual we quarterly report to the federal judge. Uh, we're summoned up there every so often. Uh, he watches the deadlines. And there's something, um, uh, in, well, we'd like to take pride in what we've done, and, and there is something intimidating about summons, being summoned to the federal court to explain to the judge why you're not going to meet the deadline that you told him you were going to meet. So those two judges, the staff at the MWRA, are truly dedicated, and, and uh, you know, they, they really work hard at it and believe in what they're doing. So it all came together. And, frankly, you know, the, the political leaders around, we serve 61 communities in the greater Boston area. Boston is our biggest. It's about a third of our rate base. But we've had great support from the elected officials, from the governor to the mayor of Boston on down uh, for this project, because I think the governors and the mayors have seen or understood the value of this investment. So we're so we're talking about a real collaboration between the executive and the executive and judicial uh, branches in terms of really actually making sure that this is enforced and people actually making and, and doing the right thing by the by the bay and by the people of Boston. That's right. It was a joint effort in the legislature and the city councils. I mean, everyone, you know, it's tough to take the heat when you're raising water and sewer bills, but it's a far cry from when the authority was first created back in the late '80s. They reenacted the Tea Party, uh, throwing the water and sewer bills into Boston Harbor burning them in, in a barrel out in front of the, the state house, And there was a real blowback from the, the residents over the increased uh, water and sewer rates that were coming their direction. And uh, now, uh, frankly, it, it, it is a heavy burden. Our average rate payer is, is paying somewhere around $1,000 a year for the combined water and sewer bill. But I think one of the things that helps us with that is we can show, one, that the money was spent wisely, and two, that everything we have built works. And, and uh, that, that, you know, there's a result of it. And the result is the, the positive, clean harbor. But I think, it, but in order to mm-hmm. but in order to enforce that, you, I mean, this also requires significant cultural shifts, right? I mean, it requires people requires people not looking at the bay as something they can just dump trash into, or or uh, you know, it requires them to really think carefully uh, and critically about the type of environment that they want to that they want to live in and that they want to protect. How did you go about creating the cultural shift and the and the uh, and the and the narrative shift that needed to take place amongst the residents? Well, Wes, you're absolutely right. The for decades. Decades and decades, the, the theory behind the wastewater treatment was dilution is the solution. So you simply pipe it and pump it out into the harbor, out into Massachusetts Bay, and let dilution take care of it. Um, and, but one of the things that has helped us is the science. The, 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 this is probably the Clean Up Boston Harbor, one of the most studied uh, cleanups in the history of this country. And the empirical data is just immense. And you can see... The, the result of the cleanup, for instance, I, I gave a presentation to some uh, environmental science graduate students not too long ago, and one of the other speakers on the panel was a worldwide expert in mud. Why someone would want to be an expert in mud, I don't know, but he was very good at what he did. And he basically described that Boston Harbor, the bottom, the floor of the harbor, was black mayonnaise, and that there was only one parasitic worm that lived in that. Now, after the cleanup and every tide, the harbor's regenerating, the, the, the benthic surveys, the entire ecosystem has come back. So the eelgrass is back, the bottom fish are back. You know, you name it, it's all back. And that's one of the things that, as I said, we've been able to show our ratepayers what they're getting for their money. We have excellent drinking water. We have a lot of drinking water. You know, we have a huge supply because we also do the drinking water side. And on the wastewater side, the cleanup of Boston Harbor speaks for itself. Just a great success story, but but you know, but the, but the truth is, is that what you were describing about Boston years ago uh, sounds very similar to where Baltimore is right now. 
Um, what can we learn from the Boston success story? Well, I think, one, you have to obviously educate the publicans of what you're doing. And the other thing you need to be careful of is, um, how can I put this? There's a whole issue with environmental justice. And, and that is, are the poorer communities going to shoulder a heavy burden for the cleanup? And what the authority did is, is they, back with the Combined Soil Program, the entire 40 some communities in the sewer system paid for the Combined Sewer Program. Uh, and that was a key part of the cleanup. So 40 some communities paid for the Combined Program, Combined Sewer Programs in four communities. Um, and so that's one of the, the issues you have to be careful of, is that you don't put a too heavy a burden on those who can least afford to pay it. This is Fred Lasky, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Water Resource Authority. Fred, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Wes. Thanks. This is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Now, after learning about the incredible success of the Boston Harbor cleanup, we're now going to discuss what we can do here in Baltimore to ensure our waterways are just as resilient. And joining us is Carl Simon, the Interim Executive Director of Blue Water Baltimore. Carl, it is so great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell me a bit about the mission of Blue Water Baltimore? Sure, I'd be happy to. Blue Water Baltimore's mission is clean water and strong communities. We are fundamentally about empowerment to engage citizens in improving the environmental health of Baltimore, our waterways, and our region. So we're ta- learning more about, about Boston, and to be very honest, what they were describing about what Boston was 20 years ago sounds a whole lot oh, yeah. like what Baltimore is right now. Can you just give our listeners an idea of where we are? What's our baseline right now? Sure. Unfortunately, we have polluted waterways. Our harbor is not safe to swim in, not safe to fish in. Our stream health is failing. Uh, the grades we pr- provide measuring water quality health say we have a lot of work to do. We have to roll up our sleeves, get to work, because as you referenced, we are decades behind other major cities in improving the waterways in our city. It is a situation, let's say over the past decade, mm-hmm. uh, is it getting any better? Is it getting worse? Overall, the amount of work and resources and attention gives me a huge reason to be optimistic, and I think we are moving in the right direction. The data and the science shows incremental improvements in certain parts of our waterway. That isn't a huge amount to get excited about, but it is something. And it really confirms what we've known for a while. The main pollution sources, sewage, stormwater, trash, we have to address those urgently if we want to improve our water health. And when we talk about the different projects that are going on that are giving you optimism, what mm-hmm. are some of those projects? Sure. Uh, their green infrastructure is a huge priority, not just in Baltimore, but regionally, internationally. And we're seeing thousands of trees planted. We are implementing stormwater projects. The city uh, is working on improving the leaking pipes for sewage. And looking at the future, too, uh, the city is planning on um, addressing the sewage backup um, going to the wastewater treatment plant. Currently, there is a 9 or 10-mile backup of sewage under parts of the city, which is simply... Uh, unacceptable for improving the water health, and the city has a headworks project planned uh, to be implemented in um, the next four or five years or so. And so part of it, I think, also has to be changing a national, uh, well, just a a citywide imagination and narrative, 
mm-hmm. around it, right? You know, if you're talking to someone in Baltimore City and they say, "Listen, I don't use the harbor for rec- mm-hmm. recreation. I don't fish. I don't. I don't swim. Mm-hmm. Why do I care mm-hmm. about what the inner harbor looks like or what the health of the inner harbor is?" The benefits of the work that results in a clean harbor benefits the neighborhoods. It's lower energy bills. It's cleaner air with lower rates of asthma, obesity, anxiety. These are documented public health outcomes for green infrastructure work. And that's what I'm advocating for. That's what Blue Water Baltimore, our mission is about. Because you're absolutely right. People in all, all Baltimore's neighborhoods, it's how does this affect me locally? I don't even know where the Chesapeake Bay is, and I don't care. And that's fine because what we are offering is Baltimore is a solution to improve your local environmental health, and there are significant public health outcomes and connections there as well. I know we had a, uh, a stated goal that they wanted people swimming in the harbor in 2020. <laughs> that, that ain't happening. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge. It was always a challenging goal, a very optimistic goal. That's why people set aggressive goals to motivate us, and it has motivated us. Right now, it's not safe to swim and or fish, and the uh, ma- vast majority of the time. But that, I will say that having a, a, a ambitious goal is motivating to me, everyone, our 4,000 volunteers who come out every year. It is something to strive for. And 2020... Before, after, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen because we are empowering a broad-based coalition of people who care about the environmental health in Baltimore, and that's what we are striving to do. So, Carl, between just between me and you and our listeners, yeah. uh, what is a realistic, ambitious, but <laughs> realistic goal that we should set out for when we can be, be able to swim, fish, et cetera, in the harbor? A realistic goal would be right around 2020, not too long after. We don't want to kick the can down the road because we know what we have to do. It's hard to answer that question because there's a lot of environmental factors. If it rains a lot, a particular year, that really conflates a lot of issues that you're working on. And we've seen that in our data. But what I we do know is when we aggressively and thoughtfully and persistently attack the sources of pollution, we will have a a clean and safe harbor. Those sources are sewage. We have sewage in our water. That's just unacceptable, and we can't continue to have that um, when it's not raining out, for example. We have huge amounts of concrete everywhere in the city. You look around. We need more green, public green space, green infrastructure, and trash. Trash Littering, it's too, it's too prevalent, and we need to address it through a peer-to-peer uh, behavior change campaign. And when we address those sources of pollution, we will have a clean harbor. We've been talking with Carl Simon, the Interim Executive Director at Blue Water Baltimore. Carl, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Future City, a show that asks, what's next for Baltimore? And I'm your host, Wes Moore. So today, we've been going over everything from rooftop gardens to harbor health. But before we leave, I'd like to leave you with one final note. We live in communities that have been under-resourced, but one positive about the underutilized space that we have in Baltimore is that we actually can use it to reimagine our future. We can reimagine where we work, where we play, and where we live. Now at its best, urban agriculture gives people ownership over their own health, their own economic future, 
and their communities. So when we talk about urban agriculture, we're not talking about industrialization. We're talking about community-focused growth, how our communities can get healthy from the inside out. When it comes to our most cherished resource, our harbor, we have got a long way to go. In 1993, then-Mayor William Donald Schaefer famously jumped into the Inner Harbor, assuring citizens that it was okay. Over 20 years later, I don't know anyone who would jump into the harbor to prove a point. But this is about much more than does Baltimore have another place to swim. It's about the short-term and long-term implications, things that we need to take seriously and want all Baltimoreans to benefit from. Best practices don't always have to originate from us, but we'd be fools not to take them very seriously. And who knows, maybe one day when the O's are beating the Red Sox for the ALE's crown, we'll all celebrate by going to have a swim in the Inner Harbor. Future City is produced by Katie Marquette and edited by Aaron Hankin. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook or Twitter, where my handle is at Westmore1, or Instagram, where my handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, and how you can become more involved in urban agriculture and sustainability projects in Baltimore, or if you just want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Future City is also made possible by Janine and Josh Fidler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. 